The bridegroom tarried, they all slumbered and slept. At midnight there was a cry made, Behold, the bridegroom cometh. In Middle Eastern weddings, pattern is that the bride goes to the home of the bridegroom during the last day prior to the marriage, and the groom elsewhere with his friends and relatives. She is prepared and puts upon herself the beautiful wedding gown and jewelry. And then the bridegroom begins a procession toward his own home where she awaits him. Others are encouraged to join him as they approach in the procession. And of course, it is important to have light, flares in some cases, but at least olive lamps. And as they go along, people wish them well, say congratulatory things. They reach the place of reunion, usually hastening toward the end of the journey. And then all who are there gathered spend the rest of that night in celebration and in feasting. You've seen all through Israel the lamps that you can carry in your hand. Roman lamps, those which were in use at the time of Jesus. And they have a center place where the oil is poured in and then a small hole at the end where the wick goes. One of those will burn with a fairly steady flame for about six hours but it won't burn all night. Notice what happens when they find that they are invited, it's late, and apparently their lamps have gone out. We're talking about the foolish ones. When they ask the wise ones to share their oil, what do the wise ones say? Not so. Notice, lest there be not enough for us and you. There won't be enough oil to go around to burn through the entire wedding feast. So go. Go to them that sell and buy for yourselves. They went in a hurry to make up last time, but by the time they returned, the door is closed. And now a terrible statement. When they knock and ask, the bridegroom says, I never knew you. The prophet, in a different context, reverses that. You never knew me. Now, the light of the Lamb is the symbol of many things. We know from modern revelation, it's this simple. Those that are wise, and we're talking here now about preparing for this ultimate sacramental feast, those that are wise, Quote, and have received the truth, comma, and have taken the Holy Spirit for their guide, shall not be hewn down, but shall abide the day. Not only abide it, but, I take it, rejoice in it, be glorified in it, and capable. What is the negative message? You cannot, in this dispensation, you must not live, finally, on borrowed light. And you cannot, with the snap of a finger or a hasty trip, become a burning and shining light, the phrase Jesus used for John. As a last-minute makeup thought, the time will come when it's too late for that. Modern Revelation says you are to come to him 
with your lamps trimmed and burning and oil with you. That's wisdom. The other is foolishness. In that remarkable set of counsels that Jesus gave on the Mount of Olives to his twelve, when they came with anxious hearts and said, tell us about the end, tell us about the climactic scene, he gives them a set of prophecies which are, in the language of some scholars, a doubling. Everything that he says in that set of predictions occurred within about 70 years, once, with the Roman conquest and the destruction of the temple. Terrible things. But everything is going to happen again. And it is that fact that led Joseph Smith to take Matthew 24 and put it in the Pearl of Great Price, with some slight changes here and there. What is the most significant change? One verse that is added in the middle, and it's in the context of the statement that in the last days, even the very elect, even those chosen and commissioned and responsive and faithful, may be deceived. But, says this added verse, whoso treasureth up my word shall not be deceived. And that same verse is added to the account in uh, another gospel, the Gospel of Mark. Someone said, I think Hugh Nibley, that our generation is remarkable in two ways. Because on the one hand, there are people who trash all of their treasures. And on the other hand, there are people who treasure nothing but trash. Treasure up my word the living word, I take it, and you will not be deceived. You will be among those who rejoice in the coming of the Lord and who will be invited to his sacrament meeting. Now, I, I want to turn to two other implications he has drawn for our times. In that remarkable section 88, which the prophet Joseph Smith called once the olive leaf, and having been in the Middle East, you know that the olive leaf is a symbol of peace, soothing, smoothing, healing, just as occurred on this very sea when it was in tempest. And he simply said, Peace, be still. In that revelation, something is said about you in relationship to the Christ. It says that he is the light. The light, it says specifically that we would call astronomical. It names the sun and the moon and the stars. Ultimately, he is the source of life, even of our planetary system. But it goes on to say that the light that shines, which helps us see with the physical eye, somehow permeates your intelligence and quickens your understanding. Which light, it goes on to say,
proceeds forth to fill the very immensity of space. It is in all things and through all things and is the light by which all things are governed. Then says the Lord to his moderns, any man or woman who has seen any or the least of these talking about the heavens hath seen God moving in his majesty and power. I interrupt uh, with a line from a German philosopher, Kant, who once observed, two things fill my soul with ever-increasing wonder. One, the starry skies above. The other, the moral law within. From our understanding, both of those are reflections of the light of Christ. But he says, you've seen him. Nevertheless, he goes on to say, I am the light which shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehendeth it not. Nevertheless, the day shall come when you shall comprehend. And I suggest that's more evil than apprehend. You shall comprehend even God being quickened in him and by him. And then this remarkable statement. Then shall ye know that ye have seen me and that I am and that I am the true light that is in you. Otherwise, you could not abound. Orson Pratt, by the way, had a footnote in which he said, every spirit of mankind saw the Lord Jesus Christ in the pre-mortal world. So the statement, then shall ye know that ye have seen me, is in effect saying, when you return and your memory comes back, you will remember that you've seen me. The context suggests that even if all you see is the light of the moon, it is still correct to say you've seen him moving in his majesty and power. It may be both are true. I'm interested by the word, otherwise ye could not abound. See, we've talked about three parables, all of them having to do fundamentally with the difference between appearance and reality. Tares look like wheat. The person with his lamp looks like another person with a lamp, but you really have to look close to realize there's no extra supply of oil. And a fig tree that has leaves without fruit looks very much like a fig tree that does have fruit, at least at a distance. All have to do with abiding, abounding, and abundant. And I believe those words are interrelated, not only as a semantic game. He said to us in another parable that is a whole chapter of John, I am the vine, if you want the tree, ye are the branches, without me ye can do nothing. Strong language, without me ye can do nothing. Well, of course, if you're not planted in a goodly land by a pure stream, you will not grow. You will wither and die. 
He's asking us to be rooted in Him. Then we will abound and bring forth abundantly. President David O. McKay many years ago made a world tour. But on the way, he was in an area in the South Seas, not far apparently from Pango Pango in Samoa. And one night, as the ship was making its way, a very remarkable thing happened. The sea became so calm that it was almost like glass, hardly a ripple. And that evening, when the sun went down, it happened that there was a cloud cover all the way over the ship and in every direction of the horizon. And as the sun went down, the colors, the incredible mix of colors, covered all of the cloud cover and therefore was reflected in the ocean itself. So that here's a ship and in every direction you look, riotous, magnificent color. He was overwhelmed in the beauty of that experience. And then went as darkness pursued into the hold and found himself musing, lying in his hammock. And his thoughts went in the direction of first awe at the grandeur of the spectacle, how magnificent. But then, yes, that was beautiful. But it was not as beautiful as the love of a mother for a child. Not as beautiful of the faces of those who live the gospel and are full of light. Not as beautiful as the interrelationships that go on in the family of God. In other words, however magnificent nature may be, nothing is as beautiful as the children of God when they are the children of God. And then he fell asleep. And he had a dream. And in the dream, at some point, uh, he sees, as in the distance, a person leading a group upward, a multitude, it appeared. And he asks the question, who are they? But that's only after he has first recognized who is leading. It's only a profile, he says in his account. It's only a profile he saw, and yet there was a, a serenity, a glory in the profile, such that he knew it was the Son of God, it was Jesus. All right, then, who are these? And as if the question had been heard and then dramatically answered, an ark formed over them. He read words as if in gold. These are they who have overcome the world, who are truly born again. I suggest to you 
that these parables, elementary they may seem to be, are pointing us to the recognition that if we do not begin our lives with Jesus Christ, we will not end our lives with him. That if we are simply interested in appearance, how we look to others, but not in actually being rooted in sacrificial faith in him, then the time may come when we are denied the privilege of entering his presence. They cannot, I repeat, be sanctified is the word of modern revelation for those who have continually refused to receive. I listen sometimes to hymns and ask myself, is that true, that particular line? We all love the hymn, I love it. But there's a line in Jesus once of humble birth. But he now shall bear no more. As if to say it's all over. There is a sense in which what he did was finished and the will of the Father finished, but that very fact, I submit to you, must make it harder rather than easier for him now. For how is it to have given all you can give and having suffered all you can suffer to spare others? and have them turn their back. Turn their back at the very time often that they need him most. Why, the Book of Mormon asks at one point, do we choose death rather than life? We do. And then try to convince others that it's really life. It's the real way to live. Alternative lifestyles are alternative death styles. They minister death to our best intellectual faculties, to our emotional life, and even to our creative powers. And yet the advertisements of our time suggest the opposite. Well, he lives, he loves, and he is patient, but he is bearing the burden of those of us who ignore him. In closing, a testimony. We are told that there is a pearl of great price, even a pearl of greatest price. Sell all thou hast, that parable says, in order for one thing, a pearl of great price. Well, I'm testifying that you cannot have the pearl without paying the price. And that price is giving yourself totally as Jesus Christ gave himself totally. I bear my witness that he lives, that he walked in this very place. I bear my witness that these parables are for us and our time. I bear witness that you can grow and flourish and bear fruit, and that you can have oil in your lamps and burning an oil with you and the Holy Spirit will radiate from your soul as from your face. And I bear witness that it is worth it. It is worth all that it costs and more to be among those who can say, yes, we received. Yes, 
we have been born anew. And yes, we know the source of life and light. I bear that witness in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.